You're listening to Conversations in Atlantic Theory, a podcast dedicated to books and ideas generated from and about the Atlantic world. In collaboration with the Journal of French and Francophone Philosophy, these conversations explore the cultural, political, and philosophical traditions of the Atlantic world, ranging from European critical theory to the Black Atlantic to sites of indigenous resistance and self-articulation as well as the complex geography of thinking between traditions, inside traditions, and from positions of insurgency, critique, and counter-narrative. Today's discussion is with Dr. Michael Lawrence Dickinson, an assistant professor of African American history at Virginia Commonwealth University. He was a 2019 to 2020 Barra Sabbatical Fellow at University of Pennsylvania's McNeil Center for Early American Studies. His research interests include enslaved Black life, comparative slavery, Black Atlantic studies, and urban history. In this conversation, we discuss his book Almost Dead, Slavery and Social Rebirth in the Black Urban Atlantic, which was published in 2022 by the University of Georgia Press as part of its Race and the Atlantic World series. Our conversation here focuses on the key concepts and arguments in the book, where he argues how the Black Urban Atlantic remains spaces for Black oppression and resilience. All right, so we're here today with Michael Lawrence. Welcome to the show. Um, And as a way of getting started, you know, we usually ask people who join what the origins of your project are and um, if you can sort of narrate us through your project and how you came to it. Um, You know, John always talks about writing a book takes an emotional toll, philosophical toll, ethical toll. (laughs) So um, so what drew you to the questions um, in Almost Dead? Why this project and why now? Sure. So, um, so that's that's a long story, um, and I think to start with, I, it might help to know a little bit about me. Uh, so, I'm actually from Northern Delaware, uh, which is in many ways just a sort of a large suburb of Philadelphia. Um, and so, I've always been fascinated by cities, uh, Philadelphia in particular. We actually, my family would go to church on uh, Sundays right outside of the city. Uh, my parent—that's where my parents met, and so I've always had this fascination with cities. Um, again, particularly Philadelphia. And so, uh, so the, the project started out when I was in a graduate student, and really, I was intrigued and fascinated when I found out that um, m- many of the enslaved. Um, enslaved individuals who uh, labored in Philadelphia, they actually came from the, the Caribbean. Um, and so in really thinking about that network, I was, I was curious. And then um, I was, uh, I was working, whittling away at an archive uh, with a dissertation fellowship in Philadelphia um, at the library company and, um, and, and uh, elsewhere I, I was doing some research and I, I eventually stumbled upon Jeffrey Brace's narrative. Um, and so uh, reading his narrative, it started to take more of a human turn, a human, um, a human perspective. Um, not necessarily thinking only about the the network of this Black Atlantic with port cities, but also more importantly thinking about these human stories that are part of that, right? The perspectives of of enslaved individuals and. Um, uh, around the same time, I actually uh, was, uh, I became familiar with Florence Hall's narrative. Um, so an archivist at the library company, uh, Crystal Appia. So shout out to Crystal. She brought it to my attention. Um, she's at UVA now. 
And so that's a that's a happy plug for our archivists out there that that do wonderful work and make um, our work so um, so much more possible. And so uh, Crystal brought Florence Hall's narrative to my attention at the, around the same time. And um, her narrative is famous in the Philadelphia area. Um, at uh, it was stumbled upon at uh, the Historical Society of Pennsylvania some years back, uh, just uh, within the. Uh, Within the papers of a of a slaveholder, and um, and so this this larger um, urban Atlantic started to take a more human um, perspective through these narratives in my mind, and that's sto- really the story I started to want to tell. Right? How did enslaved individuals survive the the Black urban Atlantic, um, and how did they um, they envision these these pathways in terms of their life experiences? And that's that's really the heart of the project. Really thinking about that that larger question um, about uh, survival and um, and this urban Atlantic through the eyes of the enslaved. And it's, I really like how, you know, you bring in, talk about Je- Jeffrey Brace and Florence Hall, which yeah, you started off with Jeffrey Brace. And it's in such a storytelling mode that I kind of forget, oh, actually, this is real. Like, this is like he sifted through documents and then to put these stories together. So how was it having to voice, <laughs> you know, these stories and... I don't know. I don't know if I want to say that you were you were the voice, but you really did a great job because I felt like I was reading something Jeffrey Brace would write, you know. Mm. And of course, you did put in um, quotations of exact things that they've said. But how was that for you? Did you face any challenges in terms of how to like frame this? Because you really put it through the novel. Like, sorry, not the novel, but the see. I think it's. I still think it's like a novel. <laughs> you put it through that you wanted um, their voices to shine through. You know the study. Yes, I'm, I'm glad you picked up on that, and that's that's wonderful to hear. Just because I mean that was uh, part of my goal here. Um, I, I wouldn't go. I wouldn't say that. Um, I, I know. I think my writing pales in comparison to the actual testimonies of these enslaved individuals. They're so much more powerful than than I can ever communicate. Um, but trying to weave those stories into a, a larger narrative that was something at the forefront of my mind when I wrote the book um, because. Uh, because I, I wanted to draw the reader into this world, right? Um, to help us to understand the the lived realities of of the daily struggles, the um, the lived realities of survival, right? Um, and social and otherwise of for these enslaved individuals. And so to do that required a, a lot of effort. I mean, so it, it required in some cases prioritizing uh, the narrative and flow uh, to historiography, for instance, and jargon. Um, you'll see in the footnotes that um, uh, there's more historiography in the footnotes notes um there's that's added there uh but it was sometimes they require prioritizing that and we'll see how how the reviewers uh <laughs> what the reviewers <laughs> think of that but but that was one of that was one of my goals i wanted it to be readable for and and help us to draw into those that that larger world because otherwise it's really difficult right we feel so removed in terms of time but also in terms of experience in many ways and so i wanted the reader to really appreciate that and and uh, be able to grapple with that um and the other part i will say i wanted this to be readable for for a larger audience outside of just uh, academic historians or traditional historians um because I, I think um, I think it's a larger story worth worth telling. So I wanted my my dad, for instance. Um, I actually made a post about this on Twitter the other day. Uh, because uh, so my my dad, he's he's brilliant, but um, he 
he doesn't doesn't have a lot of formal education, right? He he um, he entered the Vietnam War uh, almost directly out of high school, and and so, uh, but he's also brilliant, and I, and I wanted him to be able to grapple with these uh, the arguments and the ideas and the and the um, and the content. And so he called me up over the weekend. We talk regularly, but he called me up just to tell me that he just finished reading the book cover to cover and he provided his analysis. And so, um, and, and, uh, and so that's, I think that's, um, that, that if that's a metric of success, which I think in part it is for me, um, I, I will say mission accomplished. Um, I also, uh, he, he got a kick out of me using my, my middle name on the on the cover because his first name is Lawrence, so I'm named after him. In his head, he's like, I did something too. <laughs> <laughs> this is my work too. Right, I really right. like this wave of scholars who are putting out, you know, studies like these, mm-hmm. not for just academia. They're like, you know, this is really for everybody and including everybody into the conversation. So right. I, I, I like hearing the story that your dad is like, I have something to say too. <laughs> <laughs> yes. And I, I think you make a useful point, right? This is, I think it's a larger thrust of scholarship of of, of newer works that are really trying to um, help us to understand uh, elements of history um, and slavery in particular in ways that are, I think, evocative and um, digestible um, and not limited to a traditional academic audience. Mm -hmm. And, you know, I think one of the things your book does, which captured me, I mean, the name, that has to capture anybody, you know, whether you are a historian or you only read comic books. I mean, just seeing Almost Dead, it's like, wait, what? (laughs) So can you tell us a little bit about um, how, how you came across, you know, titling your book Almost Dead? Right. So um, I will say I'm, I'm, I've always been very much enamored by quotes and that can go any number of ways, right? Music, uh, television, right? Um, uh, and movies, right? Any number of things in books, uh, memoirs, right? And so reading some of these testimonies and they're just things that stand out, right? Um, not only in terms of its power, but also in so much that they're uh, some of these quotes, um, including Almost Dead, it, 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 I think it speaks to a larger experience, right? Powerful, but also I think they're uh, windows into a larger um, a larger discussion. And in, in reading Jeffrey Brace's narrative, that's something that, that stood out to me. It was just such a powerful statement. I'm I'm almost dead, right? Um, and and there's so much there, and so that really resonated with me, and um, and immediately I, I knew that there was something with that quote, and I just wanted to do something with it. And so as the pro- as the project evolved, it was, um, uh, it started out as as a chapter title um, actually, and as the project evolved, I I, w- I started to think about this 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 quote more deeply, uh, especially dealing with the theoretical framework. It, it, it was um, ex- extraordinarily rich in its uh, perspective, and I think that that's not only in terms of being eye-catching, but also having a lot of um, a lot of meat to uh, to a, a fairly short statement. Yeah, it it definitely did, and I see how you followed that trajectory. Um, in the way you you know title your chapters, um, I, I yes. have to say chapter one is <laughs> titled "I Courted Death." Chapter two, "A New Master Confused My Mind." I'm not going to read the rest so that everyone has something to look <laughs> forward to. But you know, like chapter two, a name like "A New Master Confused My Mind." That's that was quite um, captive. Can you tell us more about like wh- how that one came about? Because I'm I'm super curious. Um, how did you know that, okay, this was going to be it for chapter two? 
So um, I I don't know that I did immediately. I knew it was a quote that I that I really enjoyed. Um, it was between that quote and another uh, quote from um, from Jeffrey Brace that that has uh, some somewhat of a similar sentiment he, when he's being held in a slave pen in Bridgetown. Um, but I, I wanted to provide this larger perspective, um, uh, this gender perspective, right? It's from Florence Hall. Um, she's an enslaved uh, woman, and and I wanted to uh, make sure that her voice was um, was. Um, prioritized as well, but also, I mean, it was in part, this is something that I, I've sort of meditated on, thought about, right? Um, let marinate in my mind because um, it wasn't just the quote, right? She says, uh, um, a new master uh, confused my mind, but if you look at the actual document, there's a, there's another, there's the word another there that's crossed out. And so part of what I sort of try to grapple with in the chapter is um, whether it's just, whether it's, m- m- just a typo or whether this is um this is her highlighting right that she constantly has these new masters right these new slaveholders that have possession over her um over her um in a fairly short period of time right and that's part of the urban atlantic story switching hands um between being sold from um in west africa being sold um when arrival in america is being sold potentially multiple times after that and so um it's not just a new master it's another new master right and so i I think it really speaks to the larger um this larger disorientation and social isolation that uh, Florence Hall experiences and suffers, as well as um, uh, individuals regularly in the urban Atlantic suffer. And so I think it's a window into a larger experience, um, more than the the simple quote just um, um, allows. So that, that's part of why I chose that. I wanted a window into a larger conversation. Mm-hmm. And it's, you know, Speaking of this whole window, you're building the book on social death and social rebirth. Sure. Um, and I, you know, you talk about how, of course, you're standing on giants <laughs> and you're <laughs> like, I'm going to add something to this. So can you speak how, how do you expand this framework on social rebirth and social death? Um, I do know, you know, you give a nice definition for by the historian Orlando P- uh, Patterson, excuse me. Um, so what do you think you're adding into this framework? Sure. So um, so really thinking about Orlando Patterson, right, He's, he's he starts or creates this concept of social death um, to really try to help us to understand what it meant to be enslaved for these West Africans from a West African perspective or West African worldview. Um, and he's referring to this uh, denial of social personhood outside of a, ma- a master-slave relationship. And so he's trying to help us understand this um, the, the trauma and the, the cultural trauma and social trauma of, of um of slavery that's part and parcel to the system of slavery right and so he mm-hmm. creates this idea of of social death this term that that is trying to encapsulate that and so um that's been um that's been critiqued or um questioned or uh, added to let's say a by a number of scholars um uh, J- uh, john wood sweet is um uh, is one of them um and uh, but there's also uh, we can think about Vincent Brown's work. Uh, but I think for me, what resonated most was the work of Stephanie Smallwood. And um, and so Smallwood really um, 
tries to grapple with this idea of social death, and um, she sees it as incomplete in many ways, um, as uh, only part of the conversation. And she uses this term social rebirth to highlight the ways in which African descended peoples are working to rebuild and reconstitute and uh, create new social ties. And so, um, and so really what she takes issue with, and I think is, is, um, is what I try to um, build upon is the permanency of social death um, and instead see it as something that, that threatens and something that helps us understand the trauma of, of slavery, but not um, allowing it to uh, minimize or limit or obscure the, the resilience of African descended peoples in, in reshaping and rebuilding. And so uh, she takes this conversation thinking about the Middle Passage, and I work to take it beyond that um, mm. to the Americas, particularly within these port cities, and help, help us understand how they are rebuilding and reconstituting their cultural and social ties. How are they... Um, how are they? Um, um, how are they? Not necessarily starting over, but uh, working to um, to survive, right? Because they're taking the memories and those connections with them of lost loved ones and um, a lost homeland, but they're also building uh, within that and on top of that um, in men, in ways that are extraordinarily um, important and meaningful. Uh, because I think what what Orlando Patterson really his social death. Um, social death theory really um, gives us is more of a top-down perspective mm-hmm. um, from this this larger you know hegemonic um, um, social construct uh, but with Stephanie Smallwood and myself I would argue are, are looking at sort of this um, bottom-up perspective through the eyes of those enslaved uh, meaning that that doesn't take away from the trauma or the oppression but it also helps us to understand a, a more fuller human story and so mm-hmm. um, I would argue it's not either or it's both and um, there's value in what Orlando Patterson was doing and saying but there's also I think uh, room to um, uh, room to uh, think beyond that as well as a as a tool for understanding trauma but also um, helps us to understand uh, resilience through social rebirth mm-hmm. and I think that's one of the things that made reading this so enjoyable because it didn't of course, you know, we're talking about trauma and pain and suffering, but then you still manage to weave in lines of, you know, the hope that they have to keep alive in remembering their memories and connections to the homeland or trying to forge connections like kinship and trying to keep those moments alive as a way of, you know, persevering forward. Um, and also something that was new for me was how you you know, you challenge this traditional portrait of um, urban Atlantic port cities being, you know, um, hubs of Black freedom. You specifically speak yeah. about Philadelphia, and you expand that to say, well, you know, there's also Black bondage. There are these stories. So, you know, can you speak more on what makes you want to speak about the flip side, of course, and um, what what else, or I guess not what else, but do you think th- this work also speaks to or is a response to you know this conversation around the erasure of the middle passage sure so i'll I'll answer your first question that was a loaded question yeah (laughs) (laughs) no i'll answer the first question first and then move on to the middle passage because i mean i think if uh the general theme of my book and i think of of human um of you know the uh of slavery and i think just um the, the human condition, right, also is, um, it's oftentimes not either or, but both and. Um, and so that that's uh, really funnels into really thinking about um, 
thinking about Philadelphia, right? It's very true that that Philadelphia, I think, in many ways deserves its its moniker or um, or its reputation as a hub of Black liberty, right? It's the it's uh, the first state to enact a, an abolition law um, in in the U.S. It's the home it's home to the first abolition society, right? In the in in the country, um, it uh, has the largest free Black population in uh, in the nation by the the end of the uh, end of the 18th century, turn of the 19th century, and so for all these reasons, right, it should be seen as a hub of Black liberty. But what I also want to highlight here is that it's also a hub of Black bondage, right? And so um, and so, in many ways, those those two things are can can and do function side by side um, within uh, Philadelphia. Um, and so, uh, we think of this this moniker of Philadelphia as a hub of Black liberty, certainly. But also, there is Black bondage, and in the eyes of these enslaved individuals, um, beginning uh, in the 1680s and into uh, the post-revolutionary era, right? That um, that in many ways, their enslavement. Um, it would be difficult conversation to, to highlight uh, to them and say, you know, this is, you live in a hub of black liberty. Well, much of what they suffer and much of what they deal with, right, is, is akin to uh, that of um, enslaved individuals in, in urban centers in the Caribbean, for instance, right? And so um, it, it, there's a lot of, um, there are a lot of variables there, right? It depends on who their um, who their slaveholder is. It depends on their circumstances, right? But um, it runs the gambit. And so I want us to sort of it's a deliberate effort to push back against um against an overly simplistic narrative of uh, philadelphia simply a hub of black liberty but really we need to highlight oppression as well in various forms including slavery that that reigned there um and thinking about the city as um as built upon in many ways the the backs of enslaved labor just like many other cities um throughout the the atlantic and so i, I don't i want us to not lose sight of um the complexity there and that's part of what i'm trying to do with the project. Um, now, to answer your second question about the eraser um, in the Middle Passage, um, I, I think it's also um, I think it's also helpful for us to think about the complexity of the Middle Passage in many ways, right? Because it, we historians oftentimes I think think about the Middle Passage in terms of numbers and demographics. Um, but I think what's lost in there is is black trauma, right? Black fear, black um, uh, black suffering, right? That that is part and parcel to the Middle Passage, both collectively and individually, right? And so that's part of the picture I want I want to highlight, or I tried to highlight, particularly in my first chapter, is help us to understand through the eyes of these enslaved individuals what is lost uh what are they bringing in terms of trauma to the americas right um what um how are they experiencing these seismic shifts in their social realities um that are extraordinarily influential in their um in their life experiences but also how are they surviving right um emotionally right psychologically uh, as well as physically and so um and so really what i want us to think about and really appreciate is this spectrum of human emotion that they're experiencing on the middle passage uh beyond merely the number and sort of just the facts, but on a human level, right? What, what does that look like? So I guess another question when you're digging through this and looking at all these different facets, how um, how did you, how are you coping? Because this is not an easy project. And I also have to say, I <laughs> you mentioned at the beginning how you were um, – in the introductory pages, you had to scramble a little bit because it was COVID and yeah. libraries were closing. And you're dealing with, um, you know, a project that's not exactly sunshine and rainbows. Certainly. So how how is that for you? 
So I, I think the COVID, the COVID hiccup, let's call it that. Um, it, it's a, I think it's a small, um, a, a nice way of putting it. Um, it, it, the project was impacted by COVID necessarily. So right. So I, I was fortunate that I, I conduct a lot of the research before um, the pandemic struck, but I think the more larger issue was that I couldn't go back to look up anything. So I couldn't like flesh out anything that I wanted because I couldn't go back into the archives to look at to look at uh, material more deeply or, or look at other sources. Um, and I, you'll see in my acknowledgments, I actually, um, I actually give praise to a number of folks. Um, it ranged from colleagues to graduate students to, um, I was on, I was on a fellowship at U- University of Pennsylvania at the time, um, that, uh, they were very helpful in, um, in trying to get me access to things that, you know, I, I couldn't otherwise, right? So Penn was very, McNeil Center was very, um, very kind in, in procuring me on any number of books that I needed because I couldn't get into libraries. Right. Um, and, um, and so, you know, that, that, I think this is a larger, um, I don't know, a larger experiment, I think, in, uh, not only in terms of pivoting and being versatile, but also in terms of, you know, um, uh, the help of, uh, of friends and, and colleagues and, uh, that were extraordinarily, um, generous in, in their help at sort of a, a difficult time for, for someone to be writing a book. Um, but I will say it also forced me to look more deeply at the sources that I had, right? Um, so so in many ways, I think the book would have looked different if, if I had more, uh, if I had regular access to the archives and libraries that I would have liked. Um, but I, I will say it forced me again to look more deeply at what I had and really inhabit the space more deeply and, and help us um, and, and ask sort of probing questions that perhaps I wouldn't have asked before if I didn't, uh, if I had more access to materials. And so I think the book would look different. Um, but I, I do think that um, that the finished product was um, help. I think it helps us to really think more deeply about about uh, testimonies of enslaved individuals. It helps us really think about um, the questions that uh, or or perspectives that um, that we. Um, that we can't answer, but I think we can use complementary sources uh, to really try to augment that and supplement that and help us to have a bigger, a larger um, picture that hopefully in the next round of historians like yourself will pick up and the mantle and be able to dig more deeply and flesh out those things in archives. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, I guess the thing with these archives is that it's already fragmented right and then when you're placed in a pandemic and it's like you're further <laughs> it's, like, it's like you're in a further little box you're like why um so it's it's just you know it's a fascinating time to do research let's say that yes definitely and when you were i guess you know in the archive did you face well sure you did but <laughs> what what were they or what was a challenge that you that was a little bit more like when it came to this project and looking through the testimony or even finding testimonies yeah. you know, that could really speak to this project. Right. Um, and I, I, I just realized I, I forgot to answer your, your second question in the last uh, round. I mean, it's, it's, a, it's an emotional one. I saw that you dodged it. I'm like, I'll bring it around. It's okay. <laughs> well, 
I'll, I'll start. I'll, I'll start with that question and move into the the archival um, issue of archival silences. I mean, so I, I think you're right that much of this material is, is weighty. It's heavy, right? Um, and so I think researchers, historians, scholars need to take that with with care for ourselves, right? Um, re- realizing that this is there is emotional weight to reading some of these accounts, um, and and many of these uh, these accounts of of um, of slavery. Um, but I will say, I mean, I will, I will say that, um, especially being, you know, um, an African American, um, African American man, right? That um, um, being perfect people of African descent, it's it's sort of that um, that oppression, that trauma, right? That uh, we're forced to deal with regularly, right? Um, and on a regular basis, and so, um, and so even without those, those, um, those testimonies, I mean, without reading about the trauma, right. Um, I think there's a, a, a necessary resilience, um, that I know I've cultivated. I'm sure many others have cultivated, um, in, in, um, in life, uh, necessarily. So again, for people of African descent, um, and people of color more generally. And so, um, all those things are true, right. Um, making sure that, that uh, there is space to walk away, right. Sometimes when some of these things become too weighty, but also, um, realizing that there's a level of um, personal investment and um, a level of uh, personal resilience, right, that um, that it, it takes in terms of writing these stories and, and Especially and analyzing. Think, you know, reading about the resilience of Jeffrey right. Wright's. Right. It's, um, it's hard to just be like, to kind of give up on that narrative because of how resilient he was in pursuing and being determined to mm-hmm. continue to like be, you know, almost dead it's that's um yeah it's it was really touching to read and i think that's an excellent point right because i mean as i read his narrative and i read that of florence hall and a number of these testimonies and accounts the least i can do right is read about them given that they they lived through it right um and so the least i can do is try to um to really um, read through those stories, write about those stories, um, popularize those stories, help us understand those stories, right? Um, that's the least I can do, um, given that they lived through all of this. And I think that's that's helpful for us to speak, keep in perspective. Um, and I think that that also talks about, our, that, that speaks to teaching as well, right? Um, in terms of our, um, um, some, uh, some trepidations we might have about teaching some of these stories, right? I mean, again, the least we can do is learn about them rather than uh, rather than try to um, just ignore them or act like they aren't out there. Um, for I, I know for my students, I want them to be uh, moved by these testimonies and, and narratives. I think that's part of the the goal here is not to shield from that, but instead to um, to embrace that, grapple with it, and help us to understand um, how we can uh, we can fight to make sure it doesn't happen again right and so um so that that's an excellent point you made and i just to speak to um this resiliency and the least we can do is um read about it but also what i enjoyed in the book is you brought out how they went through it so Mm -hmm. it's not that they were just resilient but it's just like well this is how they went through it. And this is maybe how we can adapt and learn from people who had to go through these painful and terrible experiences as, um, as a way of saying there is a little bit of hope, no matter right. how bad and just, you know, just terrible it can be. Um, 
so yeah they, there was like this it was it was dark <laughs> but like they, yeah. <laughs> there was like sunshine at the end and, and i mean that's how you ended the book so it um it showed through well, thank you. And so that's, I think that's, again, the, the spectrum of human emotion, right? Because I think this is especially important also because when we think about oppression, right, it rarely just disappears entirely, more times just changes form, right? And so, and so what I wanted to highlight here is that it, it's, you know, I didn't want to paint a rosy picture of just resilience um, of African descended peoples, though that's part of the story, right? Um, I actually had a question about this uh, when I was um, giving a, a talk on the book uh, uh, maybe a, a couple of weeks ago, um, and, and it was about the resilience of, you know, African descended peoples. And what I want to highlight here is not something necessarily endemic about um, being a perfect person of African descent, that they can just deal with more, right? Or that they're naturally just more resilient than their white counterparts. No, I think it speaks to this this human need to survive, right? This this human need to endure despite all of those things. So we can take um, we can take all of the the fear, anxiety, um, uh, alienation, right, loneliness, all those things that come with with slavery, and also highlight the ways in which uh, people of African descent um, they endured, right? Um, not necessarily because they uh, they didn't feel those things, but in spite of the fact that they felt those things, right? And so um, I think you're right in that it tells us also a human story about this this level of resilience uh, of of um, that human beings can demonstrate amid oppression um, that should provide a I think a message of encouragement to all of us in present day that that um, there can be a level of endurance for, for each of us, despite the continued, uh, continued uh, reality of systemic oppression. And, and, um, and that's no secret to people of African descent in the present. So, so, <laughs> so you know, I, I'm, I'm, pre- I'm preaching the choir there, but, um, but I think it's, it's helpful for us to really look back to look forward. Mm-hmm. Yeah, that's, that's a beautiful way of putting it. Um, so back to the question, I need to stop asking you like four questions at the same time. <laughs> I'm sorry. <laughs> no, that's completely Because <laughs> when I was reading, I, it was just, yeah, I had questions. But so I did wonder, you know, when you had to piece through the archive, the time that you did have, right. <laughs> you know, to find the, the source material, how, how was that experience and what challenges <laughs> did you face? Um, was it like you just the testimonies and incomplete, you know, it's it's always interesting to hear the time people spend in their experience and trying to like unsurface these testimonies and these stories. Right. I mean, I think you're right that a lot of this is incomplete. I mean, that's generally the story of um, of s- scholars who who write on slavery, right? I mean, it makes it makes the the stories that are co- somewhat complete all the more uh, rewarding, right? But I think it's also, I mean. Um, really thinking about these um, archival silences or these um, um, these these larger um, gaps, right? That we can't tell parts of the story. But I think that there's, uh, with all that said, right? I think there there's there's enough to to say meaningful things about many of these um, these these stories, um, and that requires a level of uh, flexibility on the part of researchers as well to be able to um, to think sort of. Um, um, think more holistically about um, about how to use complementary sources to tell a larger story. Um, I think one example of this is my chapter on um, these on the the gatherings of um, enslaved individuals in cities on holidays and, and Sundays throughout the 
the Anglo Atlantic, and there aren't a lot of sources on that, at least for the Anglo Atlantic. I know there are for the um, more so for the for Latin America, but in terms of the Anglo Atlantic, there's not a lot um, about what they look like, right? We have some observer accounts, but um, but I, I do think we can we have enough in terms of um, demographics, in terms of uh, what things look like in in um, in among uh, West African um, West African uh, ethnic groups, right? Um, traditionally, and uh, what what uh, things look like in terms of um, uh, any number of other pieces of evidence and, and theoretical frame, frameworks to really give some type of picture about what these things look like. Um, I think the next step of that would also be to think about, you know, um, anthropologists and um, and uh, musicians and um, perhaps uh, folks trained in um, in traditional forms of uh, West African dance and really think about, you know, how can we recreate that? But I think that we can piece together those things based off of supplementary evidence, not necessarily um, first all the firsthand accounts, right? They're helpful, but they're not complete. And so uh, this requires, again, a level of uh, creativity, a level of um, dynamic thinking on the part of researchers and historians. Um, because many of those, you're right, many of those accounts are incomplete or they don't give the full picture. But I think we can get a human story out of it and, um, and useful um, analysis from these, these bits and pieces of breadcrumbs and, um, and in so much that we're able to recreate a world of, of the urban Atlantic uh, through, through the eyes of enslaved individuals. And one of these worlds that you create or, you know, you at least you tell in the book is... I really enjoyed, you know, I don't know if they're, if I would call them love stories, but it's kind of, it was like a short glimpse into the lives of these, yeah. of a couple of these people, which I enjoyed. And it was in chapter five. So you spoke about how um, enslaved blacks used communal connections to survive the emotional toll of bondage. Um, so you speak on the stories of Lucy and Ishmael in Kingston um, and Frank, um, Anne and Frank in Philadelphia and Andrew and Hester in, Bridget, in Bridgetown who pursued relationships with significant others, um, even though they weren't in the same space. Right. Um, so, what did you think about these stories while you were writing? And what do you think these stories can tell us? How do they add to this further, you know, framework when we talk about slavery and bondage, but now you're looking at it from like, well, they actually, and it, it's, it kind of blows my mind. You know, it's <laughs> right. like with all the pain and suffering, they still like kept those, you know, relationships. Right. And I think that it's, there's beauty in that. Right. How they, it's yeah. I went like I wonder reading coming across a document like that and like having to read these things. I would have been like, wow. And p people today have all types of excuses. But I'm like, <laughs> here we are. <laughs> like, this is. Um, it was really inspiring. <laughs> Well, that's that's great to hear. I, I I think that question really does follow up um the the last question very well. I mean, it's it's fascinating to me that you um that that chapter resonated so much with you because it was the most difficult to write um and most frustrating to write if I'm being honest. In large part because I mean I only get glimmers of these these individuals in the archives, right? And that's part of what I'm I'm trying to highlight here, right? I wanted more about their relationships. I wanted more about uh, what do we know about them, but there is the 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 historical record doesn't provide much, right? And so um so it's um it's 
it's a bit frustrating, right? Because I, I think you're right that these are powerful stories, but I, I there has I want there to be more there. And so what I want us to what I wanted to do though with those fragments is help us to understand in the in within those gaps, right? Within um, the fact that we can't understand or don't know the entire story, we we can point out we do know, right? Uh, we do know about these connections that they're forging, that they're meaningful to them, right? Um, and this is where we get into the complexity of of being enslaved, right? That those those um, those linkages of love that they they matter and that they're comforting and that they're sources of hope, um, but they're also liabilities, right? For any number of reasons um, that um, that. It's it's very real the threat of forced separation in urban um, in these urban settings. Although we don't think about it that way, oftentimes we think about it in terms of plantations um, that there's these forced separations, but it happens. Um, it happens regularly within these urban centers. Um, so there's there's the threat of being separated forever. Um, there's this uh, the threat of. Um, the threat of uh, of uh, the system of slavery ripping loved ones apart, right? Um, and there's also I, this is part of the reason why I have a chapter on uh, slave punishment, realizing that um, that the the individuals you mentioned, right? Um, these couples that they're in, they actually run away together. And given everything we understand from the chapter on slave punishment, um, that the odds were against them, and also they they risked so much right um in terms of bodily injury but also um being sold away and separated permanently right if they run away together and um and in some cases death right um because of uh, running away and so uh, i wanted to highlight that we can understand that this was so important to them that they risked everything but we need to also highlight what what they risked and for those who did not run away right that they they have this constant anxiety and trepidation about being separated from loved ones that pervades their nights and days even though they can have comfort and hope within their relationships that doesn't take away from the from the constant threat of losing loved ones that that very much mattered right and so i don't i want to make sure that we don't have this sort of fairy tale image of these um these relationships as just being sort of comfort, but they're also liabilities emotionally um, that they that uh, that they're setting themselves up in many ways for uh, for this heartache that the system of slavery uh, continually dangles in front of them and threatens them with, right? And so um, and and that is on top, of course, even those who come from West Africa who already have the heartache of loved ones. Again, memories that are sources of comfort and hope, but also sources of pain and anguish, right? So a lot of this has to do, again, with two things can be true at the same time, right? Um, it's neither either or, but it's both and, that they that they can have hope and comfort, but they can also have anxiety and fear um, at the same time with these relationships. And it's parallel to, you know, the, your project in terms of, yes, Philadelphia is a, a hub of freedom, but at the same time, mm-hmm. it was also a hub of, you know, trauma and pain right. and suffering. Um, so, yeah, there's a lot of, like you said, both ends right. in this project that really, you know, challenges traditional framework and speaks to the complexities of, you know, just so many of these stories. So I, I'm liking this multi-layer now, this other thing that, I mean, I I know you were surprised, and I, <laughs> when you speak about it in the book, because I was surprised, I was like, you actually did this. But towards the end of the book, you speak about um, the legacies of captive social rebirth and the continued like resiliency of African-descended people in these um, urban Atlantic settings. So you also 
ended up finding the descendants of Jeffrey Brace and contacting them in 2019. Um, can you can you tell us about like who these descendants are, how that conversation went? Um, because I mean, wow, that's like you you followed through like generations later and still bringing the story to light. Right. So Miss um, Shonda, Miss Shauna, and Miss uh, Rhonda were extraordinarily helpful. Um, mm-hmm. They so they they uh, started to become um, come more in the spotlight um, around when I was uh, writing the book, or maybe a few years before when I was uh, when I first found the narrative, um, because uh, the Jeffrey Bass's narrative was republished, and mm-hmm. um, and there were efforts to really reconcile with this um, this legacy of um, of oppression, racial oppression in Vermont, and so um, and so there's actually um, uh, a marker, a historical marker, um, it, where Jeffrey Brace lived now, and there's also a scholarship um, at the local university to, um, to a, a social justice scholarship, and so um, and so the family um, they uh, they recently um, they recently were uh, were made aware of the the narrative by. Um, by historian Carrie Winter, who who uh, wrote the f- uh, foreword or the the introduction to the re-release of the narrative, and so mm-hmm. I was I was uh, sort of I don't I, I had. Um, let's say, uh, reservations or, or I, I had reserved optimism when I actually contacted them and asked mm-hmm. them to, to chat about the narrative and how they're really experiencing these things because I, um, I wanted to have their voice um, and really help us to think about this in, um, in, in present day. And so they were extraordinarily helpful. They were, um, they were wonderful to speak with and extraordinarily generous with their time and um, in really thinking about their uh how proud they were of their their ancestor. That that was one of the themes that came out. They were extraordinarily excited to speak about this narrative and really think about uh, what it means to their family and to um, um, and and to them individually. And so um, and so those are some of the threads from those conversations I worked to pull out in the epilogue, uh, because I, I think part of this is is again personally based for me mm-hmm. because I mean. Um, as as a black man, I don't have those connections, right? I don't have written records from my uh, from my ancestor in, mm-hmm. in those ways, and so this it was wonderful to see their reactions, hear their reactions uh, when uh, when thinking about their their ancestors' narratives, his words, his perspective, right? Um, because I think people of African descent throughout the diaspora long for that, mm-hmm. and and that's a larger conversation about well, how do we think about the um, this connection to the past, these mm-hmm. connection to these testimonies, not only in terms of connecting to a family, but also connecting to people of African descent more broadly, right? Um, and allowing that connection to the past, to understand, you know, where we've come from, um, the the suffering that our ancestors endured, uh, the ways in which oppression uh, still lingers, as well as those um, the the need for that uh, continued resilience in a world where uh, where there is continued systemic oppression and so um, and so all those questions sort of spun around within my my discussions with them and um, and so they they were really um, helpful in thinking about how these narratives are meaningful to the present and help us to really think about um, the ways uh, things have changed, the way, but also how they've stayed the same, right? How there are mm-hmm. continuities from the history uh, and history um, to the present um, and really thinking about the, um, really thinking about how do we deal with the afterlives of slavery mm-hmm. um, in ways that are far less remote. And if we go back to the beginning of our discussion, part of what I wanted to do is help us to not see these things as remote or, mm-hmm. or so far in the past that they are, um, they are uh, 
they're not as, uh, they don't resonate as much, but instead I want us to highlight, right, that this isn't as far away as we think, nor mm-hmm. is the, um, in terms of, you know, the temporal boundaries, you know, the time periods, but also it's not as far away um, as we think in terms of the, the impact of of uh, much of this trauma and mm-hmm. uh, the continued need for resilience um, in, in the present. Mm-hmm. And it's, it's, I really like how you, you mentioned because we don't know too much about, you know, Brace's wife, this was a way to incorporate like two black women into the story. Definitely. Um, so how did, I guess, how did, what did you expect to do that? You know, when you were writing this project or was this something that happened towards the end and you were like, well, I mean, they responded. So this is a great way to wrap up the book. <laughs> so I, I think I entered with the interviews with the, um, with the idea of just taking these, um, taking these thoughts for what they were, um, not sort of just having a clear-eyed, you know, conversation and and um, and sort of going with where then where that took me, right? Um, about what they wanted to discuss and how they really wanted to think through um, how they what they what their thoughts were in terms of um, Black history, in terms of the narrative, in terms of any number of things, and so um, I I wanted to include that in the book in some fashion. Um, I, I didn't yet know where that would lead or, or what I really wanted to do with that. I just sort of wanted to let their stories tell themselves and, and let that propel where, where it fit in with the book. And so as I, as I wrote and as I really reflected on their comments and their, and their, um, and their really insightful, um, their insightful observations, I, it, it seemed as though that's, that it became sort of, um, a logical placing for for those interviews at the in the epilogue uh, to help us to think about uh, connecting this to the present because this is something that I really try to do within my my teaching as well right um, not just connecting thinking about history as something in the past but things but history as something that influences the present in very real ways um, that that we tend to not think about or or tend in some case be want to be willfully ignorant of um and so i, I That's wanted a very to make nice way of putting it willfully <laughs> ignorant. i see what you did there <laughs> yeah so this that's really something and, and uh that sort of um us fit organically as I as I started to really think about our discussions and reflect on um, their insights, and so I, um, I'm glad I was able to end, as you mentioned, with uh, with uh, these two black women. Given that, um, given that, as we know, there aren't as many testimonies from black women, right, in in terms of the the, the archive or um, in terms of primary sources, and so really making these connections for um, with uh, black women for the, the epilogue I think was really important for the book, but I think important for, uh, for uh, the reader to really think not only in terms of, you know, Jeffrey Brace's story, um, but also really think about how this is impacting his, um, uh, his descendants who uh, were, who uh, two I spoke with were, were black women. I think it's meaningful. Yeah. It, well, it was, it was, it was a surprise for me. Cause I was like, Oh, well the story continues on, which is, you know, the whole point. It, doesn't dun, dun, dun. Exactly. <laughs> it just didn't end. And I was just like, yeah, I like the continuity of it. So that's, it was definitely a nice touch to the book. Thank you. So, you know, we asked this question and I'm assuming when you were writing this book, you had like this fantastic, fantasy of <laughs> this reader 
reading your book and did you have any idea of what this reader would look like or what they would take away from it? You know, we, we speak a little bit to it in terms of not for it to not just be within academia, but for it to be, you know, anybody should be able to like pick up this book because you make it so digestible. But um, what are some of the things you would want a reader to walk away from, you know, when they put down your book? Yeah, so um, so I don't know that I wrote this with, with anyone outside of, you know, my, my parents in mind and, you know, my loved ones in mind, as well as, you know, we all need the, the book as, uh, you know, in, in, um, in academia, we want the book for tenure, right, the, the um, for professional things, right, that matters as well. But beyond that, you know, I... I don't know that I that I envisioned an ideal reader here, and I think that speaks to. I mean, um, it's it's. I'm still surprised when um, I'm. You know, the book has actually comes out on on bookshelves on May first, but I have folks that have contacted me and told me like they they read it, and I'm thinking I didn't expect them to read right, <laughs> um, which is a good thing, right? But. Um, but I, I will say I, I want my reader or the the, uh, the readers more broadly to take away. Um, seeing the, the full specter of human emotion for these uh, these enslaved individuals and populations, right? Um, I think we often think of slavery in terms of labor um, and, uh, and in terms of demographics, but I want to highlight the human element here, right? That uh, the complexity of being enslaved in these spaces, um, that uh, that it's not either or, once again, but both and. And I want them to see these these individuals and populations as multivalent, multidimensional, right? Um, to see them really as... as um, as human beings, not just figures in necessarily in a book or um, or uh, on on a piece of paper, but I want them to really inhabit that space and that world um, with all of its complexity and messiness and all of its pain and sorrow, but as well as its um, hope and comfort, right? Um, and I want them to to take all of that and help. Uh, in order to understand what it, what it meant to inhabit the space of the Black Urban Atlantic, um, and so hopefully, if they walk away with with that, uh, with a sense of that humanity, I think I've done my job. Yeah, and I think it it helps, you know, give them a, a perspective that's a little bit more, you know, empathetic to seeing right. people as humans right, you know? right. <laughs> uh, a conversation that we continue to have today so yeah i'm i'm glad this is out there and people that you are surprised to be reading it are reading it that's a good thing let's hope they use it for <laughs> in, intentionally in a way that's um you know it breaks any ignorance Let's put it that way. Oh, there's so many things in words <laughs> to like curve around when you're, you know, speaking about this. Um, so when, I guess the question for you after this is what's next, you know, like where did this project leave you and what do you plan on? Are you going to plan on working on it more, developing it or um What's next for Michael Lawrence Dickinson? I'm, I put the Lawrence in there for your dad. <laughs> well, thank you. I'm sure he'll be he'll be grateful for that. Um, well, I think um, I think this this leaves me. I mean, there, there's still a, a number of things left on the table, right? I think one of the best things that um, one of my uh, advisors, um, W. Maloba at at uh, University of Delaware, he he always told me, right, you don't have to put everything in one project, right? And so there's a lot of things on the cutting room floor that that sort of got lopped off just because you know it wasn't part of the story that I wanted to tell. Um, it didn't fit in, and so there there is that possibility. Um, 
but I very much see myself um, in, in the next project. I started doing some work on it. I, I, I was fascinated by this, um, again, these human stories, uh, really thinking about, uh, in this case, forced separation in the domestic slave trade. Um, a little bit later, but um, and of course a different different region. But um, I'm I'm living here in Richmond, and I have a lot of students that have interests in what that looked like, right? Um, because we think of the domestic slave trade again in many ways in terms of in terms of numbers um, and in terms of you know these networks. But um, there's not a huge amount of work um, outside of one or two uh, um, books really thinking about forced separation and the human toll that that takes. And I'm really interested again with rebuilding, reimagining, reconstituting uh, amid the pain and and um, and um, and the sadness and all those things that come with um, the constant threat of forced separation. Um, and so really thinking about how do these urban centers, uh, Richmond, as well as um, uh, other urban areas function as spaces of forced separation and black trauma. I think that's, those are human stories that I would, I, I want to look at more deeply thinking about a second book project. And so um, hopefully that this book has prepared me well for that. Uh, <laughs> um, and hopefully you have more access to the archive and it's not like a post COVID you know, that is true. That's going to take. <laughs> well, thank you so much. Um, and yeah, you know, I really urge people to, you know, pick up the book. And I really feel like if you're afraid of history <laughs> and all that, you know, historical jargon, you make it so digestible for just anybody to just read the book and understand like these are human stories with just human experiences and how these people persevered through these times um and then seeing the continued legacies just makes it even more um it makes it more inspiration especially during times where you know there's not little there's a little hope and things are like well is it going to be the same right. so, um this book was really it was really good to be like well you know it's up and down and that's okay but you know you're still alive and survive through it all so i appreciate that well thank you so much it's very <laughs> kind of you 